and welcome to episode four of Highways to the Past. I'm Caroline Barry-Smith. And I'm Andrew Henderson-Schwartz. If you haven't joined us before, during this podcast, we've been learning about a fascinating archaeological site called Field 44 and meeting the archaeologists helping us to understand what life was like there. All this work is part of the proposed National Highways, the A428 Black Cat to Caxton Gibbet Improvement Scheme, managed by Skanska. Yes, and how time has flown by. We've already reached our last episode here on Field 44, and it's certainly been quite a journey. I mean, don't you think it seems already like months ago that we were huddled together in that cabin on the site itself, um, being introduced to the kind of overall aims and ambitions of this scheme? It certainly does. And since then, we've heard from the field archaeologists digging on the site, the finds processing team up in Northampton, and the environmental archaeologists studying microscopic ancient remains. Yes, and today, for our last episode on Field 44, we're digging into the detail of some of the most interesting objects that have been found. Now, we may not have struck gold during these excavations, but that doesn't mean the things we found aren't incredibly valuable. Definitely. Often it's the everyday items that are most interesting and help us really understand what people's lives were like thousands of years ago. To tell us more, I've been chatting to our senior registered find specialist, Michael Marshall. We appreciate that it's quite hard to visualise what these finds look like on audio alone. So we're going to try our best to describe them to you. But if you would like to see photos of what we're discussing, you can find these on www mola.org.uk forward slash A428. I'm really looking forward to hearing about what these artefacts tell us about life at Field 44. So without further ado, let's head over to our London archive to get a close-up and personal view of these 2,000-year-old objects here on Highways to the Past. So we've made some incredible discoveries at Field 44 and over the coming months a whole team of specialists are going to be looking at the finds from Field 44 but we've been fortunate enough now to be joined by find specialist from MOLA Michael Marshall who's had a first peek at what's been coming out the ground at the site. So Michael to start with can you just tell us what, what your role at MOLA is and how you're involved in this project? So I'm one of MOLA's archaeological specialists. My particular area of interest is small finds which are things like small personal objects that people used in the past. And when we do an excavation and bring the material back uh, to our offices, myself and colleagues look at them and see what we can find about pe how people lived in the past. And so at what point do you normally get involved in a project like Field 44? Well, specialists can be involved quite early. We might help uh, design research questions or collection strategies, but our main involvement tends to come uh, after the excavation is underway or even when it's finished. So this is when uh, objects start coming back to the office um, and we start to examine them and feedback the information that we can uh, figure out from them into the, the project databases and to the project team. So for those listening, we've got a, a selection of finds from Field 44 laid out on the table in front of us. 
um, which Michael has been doing some initial research on. So maybe Michael will start with this big chunky triangular object um, on the table, which we know is a, a loom weight. So potentially just want to start by telling us a bit about that. Yeah, so this object is a little bit bigger than my hand. Um, it's really chunky and heavy. It's probably a little under two kilograms in weight. Uh, and it's got a hole that runs through each of the corners. And that's uh, where a string would have run through in order to tie it onto the loom. So this is evidence of weaving in the past. Um, and uh, loom weights like this hung from the warp threads, which are the vertical threads on a loom when people were making textile. Uh, this particular triangular form is really quite common in southern Britain during the Iron Age and into the early Roman period. Uh, it's, I would say, the, the kind of thing that we would expect to find on a, on a rural Iron Age site. Uh, but one of the really interesting things about the discoveries of Field 44 is that they found a group of these together associated with a specific building um, and also with some other objects like uh, bone or antler combs, which might have been used in the weaving process as well. So it's possible that we can work out which part of the settlement or which building um, people might have been doing weaving in. And is finding so many of these together significant for the Iron Age? What does this tell us about the, how the building they were found in was being used? Well, I think it will depend in post-excavation when we can work out uh, how these objects got into the ground. You know, were they uh, left there as they were used or were they thrown away in a particular place? Perhaps they formed part of the votive deposit. Uh, but even just looking at the objects themselves can potentially tell us quite a lot about the technology of weaving. Um, so we can look at how heavy the weights are, how wide they are, which um, might suggest how they were spaced on the loom and the, the sort of the tension that would have been on the thread. Uh, by looking at the clay involved, we can work out uh, where people in the settlement were gathering resources from. You know, did they just dig it straight out of the ground on the site or were they bringing clay from somewhere else in the landscape? So, you know, potentially there's really quite a lot of information you can get out of just one object. So I know we've also found um, some metal objects from the Iron Age period of Field 44. And in front of us, we've got a pin. So do you want to talk a bit more about what this, this find represents? So this is a nice example of a ring-headed pin. It's made out of bronze. It's about 12 centimetres long. And... Uh, it's made from a single piece of wire, essentially, which is kind of kinked over, then turned into a loop at the end. And this is really quite a common type of dress accessory that we find uh, in England uh, and in sort of adjacent areas of, of Britain and Ireland during the Iron Age. Really, they get introduced in the early Iron Age, um, but they're, they're quite long-lived. We know they're sort of personal objects, probably associated with dress somehow, they are occasionally found in burials, um, uh, but it's not entirely clear what their function was. Some might have fastened clothes, a few have been found around the head, and including some quite elaborate ones in burials in East Yorkshire, so it's possible that some served as hairpins um, or pin shrouds in burials. When you find one uh, outside of a burial context in a, a normal site, it's, it can be quite difficult to say firmly what they're used for. Uh, but what they do uh, represent is the fact that you know people aren't just producing things like textiles uh, on the site. People are living here. People are you know, pit, 
pinning their clothes. Uh, people are you know dressing themselves, adorning themselves with these products as well. So you also know that Field 44 is a settlement that carried on through into the Roman period from the Iron Age. And we have some examples of these Roman finds in front of us here. We have several coins um, that were found on site. So maybe we can talk through some of these and, and what they can tell us. Yeah, so coins are really useful for looking at uh, the chronology of a site because we can date them quite closely. Uh, with Roman coins, that normally involves identifying the emperor that's on them. And then you can narrow it down even further by looking at things like uh, the different offices that the emperor holds at different times. Uh, and we can use that to sometimes pin down a coin to within an individual year, even. The coins that I've got out on the table span three centuries. The earliest is a coin of the 2nd century AD. Uh, this is uh, from the 140s. Uh, Cistercius minted uh, by Antoninus Pius um, in Rome. So you've got this kind of sense not only that this part of the world is becoming part of the Roman monetary economy, but also that you know objects that have travelled a really long way are, are making their way into the hands of people um, who are living on the site. Uh, the second coin is a little bit later. Uh, so this is a coin of Carousius, uh, which was minted much more closely to home. Uh, this is a, a smaller coin, um, what we call radiate, um, because the emperors um, on these types of coins wear radiate crowns, basically spiky crowns. Um, and Crousius is quite interesting for the history of Britain uh, because he was a, essentially a usurper um, who led a sort of breakaway um, part of the Roman Empire. Uh, and this coin was made in London uh, rather than in Rome mm. because Rome wasn't part of his empire. Um, it was the Britannic Empire. It was it was focused on London, which would have been his capital. So, um, so I guess this is showing that that even through these periods of instability, that life at Field Forty Four was carrying on as as in some ways as normal. That trade was still happening. That it was business as usual for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, th these um, uh, types of coins are found pretty commonly uh, in in the countryside of Roman Britain. Uh, so increasingly through the Roman period, uh, rural settlements seem to become more and more engaged with the Roman monetary economy. Uh, and, you know, the, these kind of relative small change seems to circulate quite widely, um, suggesting that economic life is continuing. Um, and then the last couple are some of the really the most common sorts of coins that we find uh, on Roman sites. These are dating to the middle of the 4th century AD, little Numi. Uh, they're about just over a centimetre um, in diameter, this example. Um, uh, and, but interestingly, again, you know, they're, they're very typical coins to find on a small rural site, but they are telling us a story about the wider Roman Empire and what's happening. So, for example, uh, this one here, uh, which has a head wearing a crested helmet on it, um, is actually... Uh, a personification of Constantinople, so that's the capital of the Eastern Empire. Um, so yeah, that's you know a very long way away indeed. Um, uh, and it was minted in Trier, um, in uh, so you know, one of the major urban centres in the northwest provinces. Um, uh, so you know, just this one object connects our site um, to uh, big capitals of northwest Europe, but also right to the Eastern Empire as well. So have we found any kind of higher status objects related to the finds from Field 44? 
Well, the specialists are really only just starting to work through the material, but even amongst uh, these first couple of objects that I'm looking at, I can see some interesting indications. So we've got, it's not in very good condition anymore, sadly, uh, but there is a uh, quite a nice little silver finger ring. It's quite plain, but it is made out of precious metal. Um, it's relatively large, probably big enough to suggest it's worn on an adult finger. Uh, so, you know, that's telling us a little bit about how people dressed. And as I said, you know, uh, wearing precious metal jewellery is an indication that you've got some sort of wealth. Also, by looking at some of the other stuff from the site, we can get uh, an impression of how people lived. The, you know, in the pottery assemblage, there are things like uh, some nice tablewares, things like bits of mortaria, uh, which are sort of Roman mixing bowls almost with um, sort of grits built into them. So you kind of break down and shred stuff as you mix it around inside it. Uh, this object on the table in front of me is part of a Roman glass vessel. There isn't very much left of it, um, but uh, it's very flat and it's sort of textured on one side, um, lightly textured and scratched on one side and glossy on the other. And that's kind of enough to hint that it's probably out from quite a big uh, Roman glass bottle for the first, second century AD. So whether this came to the um, site you know, to be used as a, as a vessel, whether it came with its contents, you know, uh, maybe olive oil or something like that. Uh, uh, the actual raw materials come all the way from the Mediterranean at this time, although they were making glass vessels inside Britain out of recycled glass. So, you know, it suggests that people on this site are able to get access to maybe not luxuries, but certainly the the sorts of things that people within Roman Britain are, are coming to, to, to almost take for granted. So I guess we're, we're, what you're saying there is we're looking at a, a group of finds that firstly suggests that these are people that are not just surviving, they're they're doing more than that, they're thriving at, at Field Foot 4 and that they're also connected to the wider world or increasingly connected to the wider world as we go through into the Roman period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the really interesting stories uh, uh, of Roman archaeology is the that sort of interplay between the local and the more global. Um, so uh, the Roman Empire has lots of different communities that are sort of strung together uh, and you know, there's people and stuff moving around, much as there is in the modern world. And you know, not it doesn't mean that everybody lives exactly the same lifestyle. Um, and you know, if you compare our site to, say, a site in Gaul or in North Africa, obviously there's going to be major differences. But there are sort of common threads that kind of flow through them all. So you know, some of the same sorts of coinage because you're talking about this sort of integrated monetary economy. Um, certain goods that connect different parts of the empire together, uh, and you know, it, you know things like particular foodstuffs, particular ways of preparing your food are also sort of you know common ways in which people live their lives. So things that might uh, be quite familiar, you know, if you travelled um, uh, from from one area to another. So as you said, we're still in quite an early stage of our work in assessing these finds that we found at Field Food Fort. So what comes next in the process? Uh, well, these artefacts will be um, sent out to various different specialists with different areas of expertise uh, to see how much we can find out about them. Uh, and it's at that point that we can start really building up a clearer picture of what the nature activity at Field 44 was. So our final question that we have for you, which is something that we're asking to everyone on the podcast, is what's the best thing about being an archaeologist? <laughs> That's a really great question. Um, 
I, I really love looking at objects because they can tell you about all these little small events in people's lives. Um, uh, you know, you can pick up something and there's some wear on it and you can tell how somebody's used it. Um, or uh, you can imagine, you know, if you hold a heavy loom weight in your hand, you can imagine the experience of somebody sort of hefting them into place when they're setting up the loom. Um, and that's a really sort of tangible um, connection. Um, and they, they seem like kind of quite trifling little observations. Um, but I really enjoy the way that when you you know, start looking at them across a site or, you know, across, you know, a country or whatever, you actually start to build these quite interesting perspectives on how, what life was like in the past. So we're joined again by Caroline now, and just to kind of chat through that interview with Michael, I think the, the first thing that, that really struck me from what Michael was saying was just how much colour a fine specialist can add. So we look at these individual finds and we see a, a coin and maybe we can identify the emperor of a coin, or we look at a bit of glass and we can maybe tell it's raven glass. But hearing Michael speak, he actually adds so much more detail just from looking at one object. Yeah, and I think that's the joy of a fine specialist. So with archaeology, you know, most archaeologists can pick up something, go, oh, it is a, or I think it is a, or I think it is so however old. But with a fine specialist, they can drill out down into the detail. And it's not just a piece of glass. This comes from a bottle, the age of the bottle, the size of the bottle, the history of the bottle. Um, or they can pick up, you know, what, what uh, maybe anybody else looks like a, a bit of brick or a bit of stone, but actually it's a loom weight. It's a loom weight for this size. It, there's many loom weights. There's, there's, there's a big industry going on. So the great thing about a fine specialist is just the amount of detail and picture they can build up around one small artifact. Obviously, all archaeologists can, can ID and identify stuff, but the fine specialist really, really, built, like you say, puts colour on the object and builds the detail. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying about civilization and actually how some of these finds have shown how connected the settlement at Field 44 was with the wider world. So when Michael was talking about how some of the coins we found on site come from or have kind of iconography that relates to the very kind of eastern part of the empire or comes from Germany. So, so even though we're in the middle and the heart of kind of rural central Bedfordshire, I think we maybe would imagine that life doesn't really change that much here and that people don't move around that much. Actually, we've seen a huge movement of goods from between different parts of the world. Yeah, and I suppose in modern day, you know, for us, it's easy to imagine what, what, why our, our maybe our, well, the microphone in front of me has probably come from Japan, why my, my laptop here has come from the States and where the battery has come from uh, China and so on. There's, for, for us, it's really easy to understand international connections and international trade. And sometimes we think, oh, people in the past, well, they didn't have aeroplanes and they didn't have fast cars. So how on earth did they get around? But actually, people were internationally connected 2000 years ago. And it's evidence like this that really demonstrates that 
But you know, the other interesting thing about this and the other thing we must remember about archeology span is not actually just about the things we find or the finds we have in our hand, it's the things we don't find, the gaps, the things that are missing. And that can also tell a big part of the story. I think you'll notice with everything that everybody's talked about, it's, it's about um, a beautiful environment, a buttercuppy kind of meadow area, there's, there's nice little houses, there's an industry going on, but what are we missing? We're missing weapons, war, arrowheads, shields, chainmail, all of those things are actually not found in this archaeological record. It doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't there because we haven't found them, but we certainly haven't seen anything of that type. And that is an important part of archaeology, the bits you don't find as well. So we've, we've, we're coming to the end of our time at Field 44 and talking about Field 44. So Looking back on the past four episodes, what have been some of the highlights for you, Caroline? Um, I don't know whether it's a highlight, but oh, it was cold out there. <laughs> I think, uh, sometimes with archaeology, you have an image in your head of a beautiful warm field on a sunny day like they do in Time Team. Um, but that was a cold, cold place to work. So one of the memorable things is just seeing how tough our team are and how resilient they are. And they go out in all the weathers and do their job. And that is fantastic. It takes a very, you've got to be quite a healthy person um, and to have a, a, a quite a, a joy and a love of this job to be able to go out in those kind of conditions and still come home smiling and going, oh, I found something cool today. That's one of the big takeaways is actually the team that do this work. Yeah, and I, I take going, going away from the weather and back to the archaeology a little bit more. <laughs> I think for me, one of the things that I kind of noticed was we're actually working in quite a kind of small area. So you could probably walk across field 44 in about kind of 45 seconds a minute, maybe walk across the whole site. But just from yeah. this very small area, we've found so much stuff and we've answered so many different questions about what life was like in that specific area at the time. So it only kind of just leads you to wonder what what more is going to be found on the rest of the kind of A428 scheme. What I what I love about the the idea of the A428 scheme is unlike if you're in a, you're working on an archaeological dig on a building development, you just dig that development site. You just dig those areas and then you go away and it's just the information from that site. You don't have a picture of a linear picture of what is going on in the local environment further than a few meters from what you, what you've got there whereas what's great about the a428 is we've got field 44 but yeah you can guess from the name there are another at least 43 fields before it and there are a load of fields after it as well with potential and all that potential can build a really really big and long picture of what is going on in this wider area and what's going on in this area of the UK. Um, not just a, a single field, a single site, you dig that and move along. We've got so much more potentially we can find out. Um, but the great thing about archaeology is we just don't know what's going to be in field 45, field 46, field 47. We can make a good judgment, but it'll only come, well, the, the facts will only come once we start the digging. And so that's it. We've come to the end of our journey on Field 44. 
Firstly, a massive thank you to all of our guests who have contributed throughout the series. And of course, a big thanks to you for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about all our discoveries. Yes, and the good news is this is only the start of archaeological work on the A48 Black Cat to Caxton Gibbet scheme. Shortly, our teams will start work on the next five fields on the project, which are likely to reveal more astonishing discoveries. Indeed, and fingers crossed, we'll be back with Highways to the Past in early summer to share with you what's been found. In the meantime, if you do want to find out more about the archaeology of the A428 and the wider scheme, you can visit our archaeology portal, www.mola.org.uk forward slash A428, which features the latest news, blog posts, videos and images from the dig. We hope you'll be able to join us again soon, but until then, I've been Andrew Henderson-Schwartz. And I've been Caroline Barry-Smith. And thank you for joining the journey on Highways to the Past. Archaeological excavations on the A428 are part of the proposed National Highways Black Cat to Caxton Gibbet Improvement Scheme, managed by Skanska. This 17km project aims to improve journeys between Milton Keynes and Cambridge, bringing communities together and supporting long-term growth in the region. You can follow the journey at nationalhighways.co.uk, on Facebook at A428 Black Cat, or on Twitter at A428 Cat. Highways to the Past is led by staff from Mola Archaeology. It is produced by Catherine Newton and features cover artwork designed by Tracy Wellman. Thank you.